0: Pray with me, if you would. Father, we thank you for all your good blessings upon us. And how very precious are your words. By them, we, your servants, are warned and instructed in how we ought to live. Please grant us the wisdom and clarity this morning to understand and obey. We ask these things in the name of our King, the Lord Jesus. Amen. As we come into His presence with thanksgiving and praise, we consider all He has done and promised to do, showing us just how very good He is. Today, as we continue our series on prayer, our focus will be on prayers of confession. What they are and to a degree what they are not, and why prayers of confession are so crucial in our union with Christ and our approach to God. To examine prayer of confession, we'll investigate Psalm 106. Psalm 106, so please turn there with me and you're a copy of God's Word. There should be a pew Bible in the seat back in front of you or around you somewhere, please use that if your devices tend to be a distraction for you in these moments. In this case, what what I usually do when I preach is to just read the whole passage all the way through. Uh, this is a lengthier psalm, so I won't do that. I'll read section by section and comment on each section afterwards. We're approaching the psalm, just so you know, typically what I do is I try to extract everything that can be extracted from a passage of Scripture, but this time we're approaching it with a question. So this is interrogative preaching. Uh, What can this passage tell us about prayers of confession? That's the question I'm approaching
1: the text with. So, I'm going to read verses 1 through 3, and then we will... Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for He
0: is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare His praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. What well, we see first about confession, this psalm is thoroughly about confession, as we will see, but the first thing that stands out about a prayer geared towards confession in these first three verses is this, confession comes from a right heart. It's somewhat counterintuitive to say that one must have a right heart before confessing, but if you just pause to consider that, uh, it makes all the sense. In the world. If your heart is not towards the Lord with love, gratitude, trust, and delight, then it's worth asking if any prayer of confession could be genuine at all. Even if you find yourself saying all the right words, it will do no good if you do not trust Him in your confession. We've yet to define confession first. The psalm has yet to get there. We'll see that in a few verses. But before we even get there, we see that he's ramping up to the actual confession of sin with expressions of love, trust, gratitude, delight in the Lord. In the English translations, if you are reading along with me, you see that there are multiple exclamation points. And of course, those are not original. Hebrew had no punctuation at all. But that is appropriate. It is fitting to give a sense of his exuberance over what he is saying about the Lord. The psalmist, whoever it is, is excited about how good God is. He is intensely enthusiastic about God before he comes to confession, would intensely enthusiastic describe your posture towards the Lord. He sees the goodness of the Lord. And as he sees it, he wants even others to enter into praise with him. He even commands others with imperatives to praise the Lord. We have to start there in our approach to God. We will not understand the purpose of confession If we do not first love, trust, and delight in treasure the Lord. Or just pick one of those. Love, trust, delight, treasure. Like obviously those are all difficult to appropriate in your heart. Just pick one of them. You've you've got to at least trust him in your approach to confession.
1: We see that in the story of the prodigal son. It's a perfect illustration. He remembered first the
0: goodness and kindness of his father. When he came to himself as he's eating out of the pig's he remembered that even his father's servants fare better than he was doing. It would not have mattered how pretty his prepared speech would have been, It wouldn't have mattered how many big theological or proper biblical terms he used. If he secretly still hated his father and wanted him to die earlier. Or if he secretly blamed his father for giving him what he asked. That drove him to his rebellion, then it wouldn't have mattered. His restoration, his reconciliation, his forgiveness would have been short
1: lived if it could even have gotten started. But because his heart was not the same,
0: because he had returned to his father first in his heart with the firm conviction that my father is good and kind. And it did not matter how clumsy or incomplete his prayer of confession was. The Father even cuts him off, his heart was sealed in that belief in that delight of and and sight of his father's goodness. That's what verses one through three are: God is good, He is to be blessed, He
1: is to be praised. Who can even utter the mighty deeds of God? Do you come to him? Like the prodigal, like this psalmist? If you're approached to God in confession, or however you would word it, um, are, are you doing
0: that because you indeed love and trust Him and know that He is good and deserves your worship? Or do you approach Him in confession because you're afraid that if you don't confess, maybe you'll miss
1: out on heaven? Or some blessing. Got to clear the deck with God. Is that
0: what you secretly think? Do you come to Him trying to get all of your sins out in the clear, so that you can get to back to life as normal, so that you can get rid of that fear and that guilt and that shame off your back? Those motivations expose an evil desire to be in control of your favor with God. And you must give up on that fool's errand. It's not up to you. His favor is absolute in Christ. Acquaint yourself then more and more with the goodness of of the Lord expose your heart to the grandeur of God over and over baptize your mind with the promises of
1: God for in them we see his very heart consider this unless we know who God is first seeing his goodness and
0: praiseworthiness We cannot even see our sins rightly. Unless you see Him, what is it that you're confessing? It's what society says about you. It's what your family says about you. It's what your own guilty conscience or the enemy says about you. You must see Him and know Him first. Knowledge of self, knowledge of our own failings is more difficult because we must know God first. We must see Him as He is. So if you enter into confession of sins and don't feel what the psalmist is feeling in verses one through three, then stop. If your thoughts, the thoughts in your mind, do not at all resemble verses one through three, stop. First, behold him long enough until your heart is changed into something like verses one through three. Even in confession, the song of your heart should be towards praise, not self-pity, not moaning over your
1: sins, or anything else, looking inward. We don't stand a chance of rightly naming
0: and repenting of our sin in confession, except in the afterglow of beholding
1: Him with praise. Otherwise, our confession is just about us and what we see that we don't like,
0: what we want and how we desire to feel and making sure that we're good with God to clear the air and have peace within. We see the idolatry of self then very clearly if we confess our sins to the Lord without a posture of praise in the heart. So that's the first thing we see about confession, that what we might call a prerequisite for genuine biblical Confession, a right heart towards the Lord. And then we see that confession is motivated by godly desires. Confession is motivated by godly desires. We see this in verses 4 and 5. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones. That I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation. That I may glory with your inheritance. So not only is the psalmist's heart tuned to sing the praises of God, but everything he seeks and everything he wants has to do with the kingdom and glory of God. These verses, verses 4 and 5, help us see something so helpful about prayer in general. He asks for blessings. It's not wrong to ask the Lord for blessings. Lord, help me. Lord, grant me this thing I need. Give me this that I need. But He asks for blessings, not merely for Himself. He explicitly connects what He is asking
1: for, what He's asking the Lord to do for Him, for something further and more godward see
0: look look at verse 4 there are simply uh, two requests remember me and help me and then he connects them to t- these two requests to three purpose statements that i may that i may that i may what is the equivalent statement in your prayers or in your secret heart, thoughts towards God in your heart? Have you ever dug down to that point where you
1: can answer clearly, here's what I'm asking for, that I may. What? What is that for you? What would you find if you dug down that deeply? The Lord is training us to desire
0: Him, and to treasure His glory incomparably. Not one day when He finally purges us and removes our inclination to sin completely, but now. And the primary schoolroom of that training to have our hearts geared towards His glory and to treasure Him and His kingdom is in prayer. That you may what? Would be God's answer back to your prayers in training us to pray rightly and to desire the right things. Think about it. Most of our prayers then are only halfway complete. Understand, I'm not saying that you can control God by just using different words, right? That's not what I'm suggesting. Use this technique, say this sentence, and then that will make your prayers more effective. On the contrary, He's always in control of the plan and the path and will often wait to bless you even with the
1: things that He knows that you need until your heart is right in seeking them. Otherwise, it wouldn't be merciful,
0: it wouldn't be kind for Him to grant you something that He knows that you need if your heart is
1: not right in it. That would just lay the groundwork for more idols in your heart. So, think of this when it comes to your prayers. That I may what? Lord, help me with this test. That I may...
0: What is that for you?
1: Lord, please grant me a better job. That I may what? Lord,
0: please heal my relationship with so-and-so. That I may, or that we may what? If you don't have good answers, or if your answers sound nothing like verse 5, then it's no wonder that our prayers are ineffective. And of course, God reserves the right to answer no, even when we have really good answers for that I may. Really good things to add into that
1: blank, and we can just look no further than the prayers of Jesus Himself and the Apostle Paul to know that. But, how is this essential in prayers of confession?
0: Here's how this, not just prayer generally, but how it connects to prayers of confession. The reason why we approach God with confession is because your sin, our sin, is a hindrance to something. We're contingent, dependent, needy, frail creatures, so we will always need something from the Lord. We always need all things from Him. Perhaps we desire the peace and joy
1: that comes from a clear conscience. That's a big thing. Like Let alone food and shelter and
0: clothing and healed relationships. What about just peace and joy knowing that I've been forgiven? And this is something that we struggle with when we enter into sin and we need assurance from the Lord. So confession is this... this mechanism that God has given us to go from this state of lacking peace and joy and moving to peace and joy. So we want that. We want those things. We want a clear conscience. You may want the confidence that we have obeyed God in confessing our sins. He commands us to. So we want to obey Him. We want confidence that we
1: have. You may know that your sin is a hindrance to some blessing. Some blessing that you need or a barrier in one of your key
0: relationships. So you desire restoration and blessing. But why do you want those things? Is it for self or for the Lord? The story of Nehemiah is a perfect illustration of this, I think. He was brokenhearted and prayed one of the most beautiful prayers of confession in all the Bible when he realized that the sins of the people and his own household were the barrier between the people and the blessing he desired for them. The wall was torn down. The people were harassed. And it wasn't because of some geopolitical conflict. It was because of the people's sin. And God had raised up Babylon for this purpose to... Punished to send the people into exile. But if he had wanted Jerusalem to be restored, right? That's the end goal. The restoration of Jerusalem. If he had wanted that for the wrong reasons, like personal gain, familial pride, legacy, some investment venture, then even the prayer of of confession that he prayed to clear that hindrance of sin and guilt would have been tainted,
1: contaminated, and unacceptable. Why do you want what you want?
0: The Lord is kind. Therefore, He will not accept a prayer, even a prayer of confession, if we're merely laying the foundation of more idols in our hearts. I don't think we often walk around with a real sense of just how extensive God's kindness and goodness is and how much He knows us. So, before even getting to the definition of confession, there's two; these two prerequisites of confession are very stark in the text. And they cohere, I think, having a right heart towards the Lord and wanting the right things, desiring the right things, things that please the Lord cohere with all clear examples of biblical confession that we find in the text. As far as I can see. I can't think of one example of genuine confession that happens in Scripture that doesn't check those boxes. First, our hearts must be towards the Lord and tuned to praise. And second, our desires, the destination we're trying to get to on the far
1: side of our sins, must be God-honoring worth asking what to do if you don't have these two things going on in your heart
0: if even genuine biblical prayers of confession are unacceptable if you're approaching God with suspicion blaming him or if you're wanting things that don't please him if if that even taints prayer of confession what should you do The short answer, just as an aside, is in the passage we saw from James last week. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to weeping and your joy to gloom. Precisely, here's the answer. If even godly prayers of confession are impossible for you because of indwelling sin and confusion due to lies and the inner darkness that's in you because of willful rebellion, then you have to start with lamentation which is just a raw, utter exposure of your heart to God. You don't even know what to say. You can't even see it clearly. You know that you don't see him clearly. You know you want the wrong things, lamentation. But that's December 18th. might be one of the most unusual church services you've ever been to. But now we see confession defined and exemplified. Number three, confession names and owns our sin. Verse six. One verse. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity.
1: We have done wickedness. This verse is so straightforward and clear. This
0: verse is what confession is. In confession we say the same thing Confession, the word itself, means saying the same thing that God says about us. We look at our behavior, consider what we've done, and then we look at God's holiness and His moral demands, and we contrast our lives with His glory, and we say, I'm not what I should be. I've done what I ought not to do. And it was not a mistake due to a lack of knowledge, or a lack of skill, or inability, or weakness, the truth about you and me, brothers, sisters, friends,
1: is that we are indeed skilled and sophisticated in our rebellion. What you and I have done is to lean into
0: wickedness. We have committed lewd treason and spiritual adultery against the only Holy One. Songwriter John Foreman, summarizing themes at play in Micah 7, confesses the truth about us. And both of our hands are equally skilled at doing evil. Equally skilled at bribing the judges. Equally skilled
1: at perverting justice. Both of our hands both of our hands. As I've said multiple different
0: times in different settings, if there is a sin that comes between you and another person or that causes friction in a relationship, the only way that you and that other person can move past that sin is if you both come, to, or one of you at least, comes to just say, It doesn't matter. Love covers a multitude of sins. Water off a duck's back, it's all right. Don't have to talk about it anymore. Or you have to reach meaningful agreement about it. Those
1: are the only ways to move past sin that causes friction between you and another person. The related stark binary in our relationships
0: is that you can insist on being what you think is right and kill the relationship, or you can begin to doubt yourself and your rightness with holy suspicion
1: and save the relationship. Those are your only choices. Husbands, leadership for you as a sinner is often to be the first to own
0: sins. But that's a whole other sermon. God commands us to confess our sins to one another as a derivative of confessing our sins to Him that we must ask for forgiveness for our sins against the other person. We must describe our sins in a way that the other person and the Lord would agree with to say the same thing about our behavior that the Lord says. Get rid, listen, just get rid of the word apologizing altogether, okay? It means to make a defense. We know this, apologetics. Right? There is far too much apologizing out there and far too little confession of sin and asking for forgiveness. When we apologize, we say things like this I was hangry. I was tired. You don't know what a bad day this was. I'm just having a hard time. I'm trying. I'm just failing. My flesh got the better of me. I've just been struggling with these things lately.
1: I don't know what I'm doing, and other stuff like that. In essence, we make excuses. By doing
0: so, we convey that the other person does not have a right to be bothered or upset at our sin. And the sad thing is, we become so sophisticated at making excuses that
1: we begin to blame others and the Lord for our sin. Who do you think is in charge of your genetics? In confession, saying, I'm sorry, is relatively unimportant. Fitting emotions
0: or feelings usually are symptoms of the right approach. But they're not essential in confession. You can be very sorry for what you did and the effects of it on the one hand, but on the other hand, you can still be confused about what you
1: did and why it was so wrong. Right emotions, then, are
0: relatively unimportant at the outset. There's much more to say about confession and relationships, but everything that I've said here about confession and relationships also applies to your relationship with the Lord. That's why we talked about it.
1: Confession is a laying down of arms. It is giving up your rights. It is making
0: no excuses. It is a surrender. I have sinned and committed wickedness. In confession, we're making no qualms about what led to the sin. Or how it's understandable given the situation. We make no effort
1: to negotiate the degree of severity before the Lord.
0: Unless we come to the posture of heart that we see in verse 6, I have sinned, I have acted very wickedly with a zeal to take action, to put things right that we'll see in a little bit. Then, I don't know what that says about us really,
1: but I know this, it's not confession of sin. It's a defense. How can you ever be assured of the Lord's forgiveness of sins if you never come to a place where you see what you did as sin? He forgives those who are evil. But if we never think that we're that way, then how can
0: you ever be assured that He has dealt with you in forgiveness? The fourth thing we see about confession is that it is comprehensive. It is comprehensive. We see this in verses
1: 7 through 46. I'm going to read them for us. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your works. It's verse 7. Read along with me, if you will.
0: Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love. They rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet He saved them for His namesake, that He might make known His mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and He led them through the deep as through a desert. So He saved them from the hand of the foe, and redeemed them from the power of the enemy, and the waters covered their adversaries. No one of them was left. And they believed His words. They sang His praise. But they soon forgot His works. They did not wait for His counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses, And Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord. The earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram.
1: Fire also broke out in the company, and the flame burned up the wicked. They made a
0: calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said, he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents, And did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness. And would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. Then they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds and a plague broke out. Among them. Then Phinehas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed, and that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account, for they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the peoples as God commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts, and they played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against His people, and He abhorred His heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times He delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, He looked upon their distress when, they, and when He heard their cry. For their sake, He remembered His covenant and relented according to the abundance of His steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. These verses thoroughly, tragically, yet hopefully recount the drama of Israel's failure to be the people of God. God has been faithful to His covenant, start to finish, despite the repeated covenant breaking of the people. That took a lot of time to read, and I debated whether I should read it all or just summarize it. However, we must understand what the psalmist is doing. Over and over he says the word, they referring to previous generations, which does not seem to fit with what confession is. We're not coming to God confessing the sins of other people. The psalmist is not looking at Israel's history and saying, we're not like them. We're the good guys now, God. We haven't done those bad things.
1: Look on us. Instead, he's saying, we are likely just like them.
0: Prone to the same weakness and blindness and rebellion. Does not the history
1: of Israel support that thesis? What about our lives? As we look at our past or church history, arrogance wells up within us. Here's what it sounds like when thinking about our past I'm not that way anymore, referring to our own past. I've learned my lesson. We seem to think that
0: spiritual progress is like leveling up and that we'll never struggle with the things that we dealt with in the past. When you are the same person, God changes us and takes us from one degree of glory to the next. But you are you.
1: And until He completely purges us. We don't level up. We think that we won't be as stupid,
0: as sinful, or as wicked as we were in a previous time in our lives. We believe that progress is linear when it is often retrograde. Two steps forward, one step back, or maybe three steps back. Yet the purpose of looking into the past Our own past or the history of God's people is to have humility and to allow the past to be held up to us as, it were, like a mirror for us to see clearly. Because it's easy to see the sins of previous generations with that arrogance. It's easy to see your foolishness in the past. But the reason you're supposed to look clearly is to see that as a mirror By looking into the past, the humble man, the humble woman,
1: says this. We're prone to be just like them. Ironically, we can be like the Pharisees when we look at the past
0: and say things like, thank God that we are not like them. Have you ever done that, even with a Pharisee? As you read the story of Jesus' life, thank God I'm not like
1: those guys. We can also have the same feeling when we approach the history of God's people
0: and look at different errors, different
1: teachings that people held to and say, well, thank God I'm not that stupid. Remembering our failures
0: can be one of the most instrumental tools in the hands of the Holy Spirit to keep us humble and cast in bold relief our current sins that might be
1: hard for you to see. That's the problem, brothers and sisters. You are not an expert on your current failings.
0: You can see, of course, those things that rise to the surface, those manifesting or presenting issues that are very obvious to everyone and to you. But you are not an expert on what is going on deep down And only as you humbly approach and look at that mirror of the past will the Holy Spirit
1: Himself reveal where you might, in fact, be just like them. The enemy can undoubtedly capitalize
0: on bringing former and canceled sins to memory, yet he's not the only one who seeks to remind you of failure. The Spirit Himself will do that. Praise His name that He does change us and that we do go from glory to glory. However, there is a real sense in which we are supposed to willingly and humbly look back at those acts of wickedness and sins and see them clearly and confess even that we might be committing those in the present.
1: Doing so guards you against similar things. In short, if you are not first well acquainted with your sins and the
0: sins of people who are just like you, then you will be doomed to continue in or to repeat those sins. Even if that were the only benefit of considering the sins of previous generations, wouldn't it be
1: worth it to think about the ways that you and people just like you have sinned? Confession is comprehensive. This is why I try to be thorough and and say as much as I do in the prayers
0: of confession in our services here together. I have to say this as well. Many of you have a problem with the idea of generational or corporate guilt. Still, God does find groups of people and individuals guilty when they don't set themselves apart from those sins somehow. This is part of what's happening in this psalm. Phinehas and Moses are held up as positive examples because they did something about the sins of other people to clear that guilt away from the congregation. Moses
1: in praying and Phinehas, well, he took extreme action. You can read about that in your Old Testament. They did something about the sins of others to deal with the guilt.
0: That's the issue. It's not so much the, the idea of imputed guilt, though that does happen in our relationship
1: with Adam the First. It is being guilty of the sin of passivity. And we do nothing. This is why Hebrews 3 Overlays so clearly with these themes. Take care
0: lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. It is our responsibility then to exhort one another to make sure that unbelief and falling away don't happen. The sin of passivity then is guilt that comes upon you because of what began
1: in one of your brothers and sisters. You said nothing. Not my sin, not my problem is unacceptable before the Lord. But does it matter if we actually come and say it to God, this idea of confession? Like why do we actually
0: have to speak it or say something? He already knows that I'm sorry for it, that I know that it's sin. He knows it's sin. Why revisit the past and try to list not only my sins that I'm aware of, but the sins of the people who are just like me that I might be guilty of? Well, even though we know that God knows that we need things and that He knows that we desire these things, that doesn't stop us from asking for the things that we really want, does it? And we'll keep doing that,
1: but we won't usually confess this comprehensively of the Lord. And what that exposes, that unwillingness exposes that we don't
0: actually see it as a problem. We don't actually see our sin as a real issue. We're forgiven. We walk in the forgiveness of the cross. All my sin, past, present, and future is dealt with, and so it doesn't matter. God already knows I'm sorry. I trust in Jesus. Minimizing sin When you do that, you don't understand the drastic, horrible effects of sin in your relationships with other people and your relationship with God. And what blessing and what grace you are forfeiting through not naming it
1: and owning it before the Lord while you go off asking for whatever it is you need. Confession, being comprehensive in our
0: confession, threatens our sense of righteousness, and we want to be righteous, don't we?
1: We want to be in the right. Think of this. The same pride that prevents us from making
0: honest confession and asking for forgiveness happens all the time. We respond like this, all of us. We know that we've sinned. Our spouse knows that we've sinned. The Lord knows that we've sinned. And we know that probably we've sinned in ways that we are unaware of. So even though we know all that and that it's not a secret to anyone, we say idiotic stuff like this, I'm sorry if I hurt you. I didn't use the best
1: judgment. I reacted instead of responding. that fact should prove forever that with man it is impossible. That level
0: of rejection of the truth and clear separation in our mind from what everyone knows from what we're willing to say shows the stubbornness of our hearts in ways that are breathtaking. Even with the Spirit moving in us, His children, we are so prideful to say the
1: truth. We won't do it. Here's what it would sound like, just like verse 6. Here is how
0: I sinned against you. Here's how that was wrong and deplorable before the Lord. Will you please forgive me? That's not apologizing. That's confession of sin and asking for forgiveness. How much mileage would you get out of that one simple change in your relationships if you began
1: naming and owning that which we all know is sinful When we see the truth and refuse to confess it, it's not just sinful, it's demonic. Satan knows the truth. He just hates it and won't submit to it. Be careful. When God
0: holds up the mirror of your past or the mirror of the history of God's people, do you justify yourself or do you yield humbly? We do not even see our sins comprehensively. What's the harm then? And what do you lose in your relationships by being comprehensive and deeply humble in confession? Your attempts to be comprehensive won't get close to how comprehensive God's knowledge is. So when He works by His Spirit to bring something to mind, and we say, well, I made a mistake. You're resisting the Spirit at that point. You're rejecting His truth at that point, falling right in line with how the
1: enemy and his minions behave. What do you lose by being honest with the Lord and comprehensive? Whoever exalts
0: himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exhausted. will be exalted. You stand to lose nothing and to gain everything if you will but humble yourself. Don't act like a lawyer when dealing with your sins. It kills relationships. And yes, even your relationship with the Lord. Number five, the fifth thing we see about confession is that confession commits to repentance and action. I'll address this fifth point very quickly because it's subtle, but I believe it is exegetically warranted. You can see this in verses 12, 23, 30, 31, and 44. Verse 12, so he bowed their hearts down with, I'm sorry, that's the next psalm. Verse 12, then they believed his word, they sing his praise. Verse 23, therefore He said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Verses 30 and 31. Then Beneha stood up and intervened and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. Verse 44. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. He holds up the mirror of the past so that we can clearly see our potential and likely failings because we're just like them. But it's not all negative things that he sees. He sees many examples of the right kind of behavior and holds them up as well as examples to follow. He's not just picking random acts of kindness to balance out the scales like we often do. Oh, I know I sinned here, but this thing over here was done in righteousness. And for the Lord. So you can take a problem with this, but not this. These are not just good behaviors in general that he's listing here. He's listing uh, actions of the people who cleared
1: sin, like who dealt with the problem of sin, either the whole people or individuals. The psalmist isn't just trying to balance the scales. People did some bad things, but here are some good
0: examples of people who did good things, like we often do. Oh yeah, I know that I've sinned in these ways, but here's all these other things that I consider good and righteous. He's highlighting the actions of these people, or all the people even, to summon us to the same level of thorough intensity like Moses and Phinehas when they dealt with sin. He gives these examples to show us the passion and zeal we ought to have when
1: we seek to put things right. It is not innovative or deeply insightful to
0: say this, that if you don't come with zeal and plans to change and set things right, then your confession is given with only you
1: and your peace of mind as objectives. Be like Moses. Be like Phinehas and deal with sin. Be like the people when they cried out
0: to the Lord for deliverance. Number six, the sixth thing we see about confession, this is also somewhat subtle. We won't spend a lot of time here, but confession
1: justifies God. Verse 8, 15, 40 through, 44 through 46. Verse
0: 8, it says, Yet He saved them for His name's sake, that He might make known His mighty power. Verse 15, He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease. Verse 44, these aren't the only examples, but these two are very clear. Nevertheless, He looked upon their distress when He heard their cry. For their sake, He remembered the covenant and relented according to the abundance of His steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who had held them captive. On the one hand, confession is, if you want to think about it this way, yielding to the fact that you
1: are wrong. But it is also, very crucial, putting God in the right.
0: I am wrong, doesn't suffice then. It is I am wrong and You are right, Lord. Lord, all this time You have been faithful Consider the pain of saying that for a post-exilic community. That's when this was likely written, just because of the, the timing of the events that he's drawing attention to. Consider all the rampant wickedness and violence that were committed against the people. Assyria, Babylon. And yet in his confession he says, essentially, God, you were right.
1: You were just. You were faithful all Along. He is good. He's faithful to his promises. And here's how we get this messed up. Because of
0: our indwelling legal spirit, we approach confession, as we have already seen, as a way to clear the docket and get things back to normal. When something goes awry in our relationships,
1: Men especially. Have you ever said or thought something like this? What did I do wrong now? Is it our failures and sins that bother us? Are we empathetic about
0: how our sins have hurt others? Or are we just irritated that our sins cause some disruption in the peace? And how we want things to go. And so we'll deal with sin, maybe. Because we want something else. It interrupts our pursuit of pleasures or calm in our home. So alright, I guess we'll deal with sin now. That's not why the psalmist is doing this. He's not saying, why are you treating us this way, Lord? We must have done something wrong. Are you upset about our sin of idolatry? Okay, 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 we're sorry, we repent. Can we get back to
1: the land now? You said you would bless us. Come on now, be faithful to your word, Lord. Instead, it is this. He's been right this whole time. He's been just to even send us into exile. He did the right thing.
0: In all his purging, all his discipline, all the trials, all the
1: pain, it's our fault And He is right. Brothers and sisters and friends, no trial or sorrow you may face is
0: too high a price to pay if it will yield more love and sight of
1: God's faithfulness and more rejection and loathing of your sin. It's not too high a price to pay. That might be, as the people said in John 6, might be a hard saying. I hope we can bear it today. Especially if your suffering or your trial is great. You can, trust me,
0: trust the Scriptures. We just don't understand how terrible sin and
1: its effects are. Even if you've been forgiven of everything in Christ... We don't get it half the time. God is in the right. He's done the right thing. In my case, all along. That's the posture in confession.
0: God is not being a glorified bully in heaven picking on me, this frail creature of the dust, with all his holy expectations. Rather, He loves me enough to do what needs to happen to purge my heart, mind, and nature of all the malignant tumors of wickedness and the festering pus of sin within me.
1: Do you feel that way about your sin? The last thing we see, number seven, about confession is that confession is integral to worship. Verses 27 and 28. Save us, O Lord our
0: God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen, praise the Lord. Confession, then, is not an end in itself. It is essential, though, as a building block towards worship of God. The psalmist can be so bold, even granted all the sins he's confessing, to ask for the complete rebuilding
1: of the people of God, the complete replanting of them in the land, and the reversal of the exile. What he says here completes the point that we saw earlier, that we may praise you again.
0: He's asking, seeking for restoration, returning from the nation, so that we can, in fact, be that
1: people that worship you in fullness of joy. The psalmist desires to see God restore His people for God and His glory. Don't separate those ideas.
0: It's not just about sin hindering blessing. It is. and It's not just about God, Word, and full confession working to remove that hindrance of sin. Confession is supposed to do that. But you can see this when you zoom out far enough and look at the entire picture. God's absolute masterpiece of creation and redemption is centered around creating a people redeemed from their sins.
1: That's the whole point. And they, in turn, reject their sins willingly and praise Him lovingly.
0: That is the summary of all of God's actions and plans. Of everything He's doing. Sin, repentance, confession, and restoration are not just building towards the end goal of God's glory. They are
1: the central pillars of God's story. God desires to extract
0: a particular kind of glory from His creation. And it can only come from people who were formerly rebels, sinners, wicked, who now are loving worshipers of Him. This is the story He's right. It's not a response to a problem that originated in Genesis 3. The whole plan was to get to people around the throne who look at the Lamb and say, Praise Him, for He has won for God a people redeemed from their sins. That's the whole point. The goal is always and has always been from before all time to have former rebellious wicked sinners to surround His throne and praise Him.
1: He desires an incredibly majestic glory. And it can only come from those who love
0: God more than their sins. And who have gone through that transformation because of God's own love. So, confession of sin, putting God in the right, saying the same thing that He says about us, that we have sinned and need His forgiveness, is merely playing our part in this epic story of divine glory. It is good news that we are sinners, that we're not just those who make mistakes, or get it wrong and make bad judgment calls, who react instead of respond, it is good news because Jesus only came to save sinners. And you shall call His name Jesus, which means God is our salvation, because He will save His people from their sins. Jesus Christ came to earth, lived, died, and rose again to save sinners. And if we're always pontificating and categorizing what we did as mistakes and errors due to a lack of knowledge, skill, or strength, and not sin rooted in
1: a sinful, wicked heart, then Jesus can't be your Savior. Because He only comes to save sinners. Why not agree with what God says about you? Why not say it? For the first time today, or maybe the 10,000th time, yield to God in confessing to Him. Say the same thing He says about you. With Him, there is forgiveness. That we may be the ones to give Him the glory that He deserves. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this great privilege of being forgiven sinners. Grant us the humility to be comprehensive in our confession to
0: You. As much as You have brought to our attention, as much as we see mirrored in the past of Your people or in our own past, give us that same humility. Maybe not balk at being even a slimmer of the comprehensive view of your holiness.
1: If you were to count iniquities, who could stand? Forgive us of our pride. Grant us to walk in humility before you. In Jesus' name, amen.